You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at Film at Lincoln Center. Today we're sharing a conversation following our special screening of the new 4K restoration of Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. Soderbergh, Luis Guzman, Leslie Ann Warren, editor Sarah Flack, and cinematographer Ed Lockman joined us to discuss their radical, fragmentary take on the film noir. Celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, the team talked about how the movie endures as a seminal work of American film modernism and a love letter to the art cinema of the 60s. Let's go now to the conversation, moderated by film comment editor-in-chief, Nicholas Rapold. Actually, before we start the Q&A, we have a little surprise uh, recorded message um, from a very special video guest that's recorded for this. Uh, Maybe you can guess who it is. It's almost appropriate to the use of footage in the film. Um, So if we could roll that first. My name is Terence Stamp. In 1999, I was asked to work with Steven Soderbergh. And I knew his name, but I wasn't really familiar with him. But everybody told me, he's wonderful, you must work with him. And so, along with Ed Lackman, who was his DP, and... uh, Sarah Flack, who was his editor, we got to make the limey. And uh, it was a wonderful experience because Ustinov had advised me not to go to rushes. He says it often disturbs an actor's performance and uh, you were better off not seeing rushes. So the first viewing I had of the limey was a screening. And I was really taken aback because I realized that Stephen was like a kind of genius, you know, and I'd really, I would have to put him up there with Weiler and Fellini. So thank you, Mr. Soderbergh. And um, it says a lot that we're having a new print made so that new young people can share our moment. Thanks. So this is, I, I, I've seen this movie countless times, and each time I see another detail in it, and I think that's part of the, the nature of it, you discover something new um, each time. And, but, you know, as I understand it, that wasn't necessarily the way it was originally conceived. Um, I wonder if we could start just with that kind of setup. Because it's a good story, I think, even if it's a harrowing one. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't believe we're not still editing this. <laughs> it was terrifying. Um, and if there's such a thing as um, a purple heart in the entertainment industry, Sarah should have one. <laughs> it was, no. Uh, We were, uh, it wasn't written to be put together that way. And uh, it became apparent pretty quickly after we'd screened a linear version of the movie that um, that was not gonna float. So, you know, the process of, of completely divesting yourself of any original expectation was not only in this case like necessary but kind of instructive um it was it was kind of a clinic 
in in the the way you have to remove your ego from a creative process in order to solve a problem. Um, and so, you know, fortunately we, I think had the, the time and the inclination to sort of just start over, literally just start over. And, and that's what it needed. And we ended up doing some additional shooting to support um, the new approach. Um, which comprised <laughs> mostly of shots of Terrence looking off into space. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's what it was. It was a memory film. And so watching it again for the first time, getting this new version together, I was, I was surprised at the, the confidence that we had that the, there's so many loops within loops, so many recurrent images that take so long to pay off. You know, the, the sound of the chimes and the shot of the chimes, you know, that's an 80 minute slow burn. And I, I, I look at it now and think, why, why did we believe anybody would sit for that? Um, <laughs> but we, we were, again, yeah, we were just trying to solve a problem which was as a, as a memory piece, this thing needed to just be rebuilt from scratch. And so, yeah, I was scared. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is amazing. You know, I mean, there's an early shot of um, the late Peter Fonda, his, his hands. Um, and you don't realize until the end that that's him pleading for his life in the final, final sequence of the film. Um, I mean, how do you go about attacking the footage? Feels like that probably would have been like six weeks in where yeah. we had a basic structure that we were chasing that seemed to be good but needed we needed more stuff to to connect things um but yeah i mean luis like in your your opening scene when we first meet you we see you from about 10 different you know uh, uh, moments cut together that it's kind of we get a, a feel for your your whole character almost before you even say a full sentence yeah well um steve showed me a very early version and I and I watched it and I go, oh wow, this this is a pretty good movie. <laughs> and then I was shooting a movie in New York a few months later, and it was the night that the Limey opened up, and I had like a four-hour break, and there was a theater around the corner showing the Limey, and I went in to watch it, <laughs> and it was a totally completely different movie from what he showed me. But what I what I, the thing that was compelling to me was the genius of how they put this incredible puzzle together and it all worked it all worked and um i was really proud of it yeah very yeah. proud of it um as steven you used the, the the term memory piece um earlier and one thing that's so remarkable about the movie is how it gets across the feeling of a memory and the sound of a memory and also the look of, of a memory um, i mean um, ed i think you also shot um virgin suicides um, that year um, how did you come up? There's a particular way you're 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 getting the feel of a memory. How did you kind of come up with that? And and, and there you have those sort of flashbacks where you're doing lots of different types yeah. of visual um, distortion. Well, I think what the editing brought out were maybe you forgot, but there were ideas that you told me when we were shooting. You said there were things that you wanted to do and out of sight, where he shot the same dialogue in different locations. So I already thought the film was going to look like this. <laughs> I'm the only one that so thought it was because I didn't totally understand 
what we were doing when we were shooting. He would say, oh, just run those lines that we had done the day or two before. And that opened up. And then also the references he gave me were Point Blank and Get Carter. And Point Blank is this disjunctive, fractured world visually. So I knew you were already had an inclination thinking that way. So it's interesting that then he went back to what yeah. your first inclination was about it. it is that a, true? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's you're you're right that there were there were some ideas that were sort of left over from out of sight that I didn't get to explore. Um, editorial skin tags is like I think a great way to describe them. Um, and and that scene was was a, a really good example. There's no reason rationally that your head shouldn't snap off when you watch a scene like that because it makes no sense in a in a in a literal way. It makes sense in in terms of your memory and the way that you remember things. And so that's why I was interested to see like can it be done? Can you shoot a scene in three different places with the same dialogue and cut it and make it seem like it's all happening at the same time? I just wanted to know the answer to that. I'd seen other people do things that were similar, but I, but I really wanted to push it. Um, and I think that turned out to be a sort of, you know, talisman of like, okay, well that, even in the linear cut, that seemed to work. So I think we paid attention to that. But then my memory, which is etched in jello, um, <laughs> is that we got a, a, a piece of music from Cliff at a certain point that really helped uh, Sarah and I sort of establish the, the, just the feeling of it. It was that piano piece, that sort of two note, off tune, repetitive piano piece. It sounded like memory. That's the only way I can describe it. And it seemed, in my mind, it opened up like, oh my God, you can put any image up against this music in any, any sequence of images in any order up against that piece of music and it'll kind of work. And that I remember as being like another, another way of like, okay, that's, we're, we're getting closer to something you know, but it was it was a very odd as as someone who was an, who had edited my first three films and then out of sight seemed to be a positive experience for everybody involved. And this felt like, oh, you know, things are starting to move in the right direction to, to then be in a situation early on where I felt like the movie was not working at all and that we were. I, this thing was just going to fly into a mountain. Um, I, I, you know, any any avenue that looked like there was daylight, uh, we were chasing. Like I was just chasing, like anything that worked. Well, there's one other aspect that people say it's memory, but when you run the dialogue over a reaction shot, that's their dialogue, creates the internal world for me as the character. And that's what makes it very cerebral, and you feel the emotion of this character, you know, as a viewer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're constantly getting like just time warped into people's heads all the time with with the, with the words. I mean, well, I yeah, I think the most the most the best example of that is the scene where Terrence shows up at your apartment, and you have this first encounter, and and we uh, like 
came up with this grammar of when we're really tight, really tight on you, you can be speaking, but your mouth isn't moving. And then when we back off a little bit, then, then you're talking and you're in sync. And once we sort of just, Sarah and I were like, oh, that kind of works. Like, and then we kind of ran with that. But again, I got to tell you, this was a war of attrition. Like it was two yards at a time. Like we were like grinding this out. And again, trying to map the loops within loops. And when, do, you know, how long can we sustain the idea that it's, He's not on the plane coming, he's on the plane going home. Like how long can we keep that idea alive and where should we sort of definitively explain to the audience that that's, we're actually now, as you said, in the last shot of the movie, we're finally caught up. Yeah. But I wanna, we were talking earlier, so I, I wanna hear more about <laughs> the actor's experience of this yeah. <laughs> because it's so, it's fascinating to me, you know, my, my experience of it is so completely different. I have a joke, whenever you're working on a film, at a certain point you come up against the realization that, um, as, I, as I like to say, everybody's making their own movie. Like you, you realize at a certain point a department head or somebody that like you have a certain movie in your head and it is not the movie they have in their head. And you've got to figure out how to reconcile these things. So we were talking a little bit about that, but maybe you can expand yeah, what, on that. What was the movie you had in your head, yeah. Leslie and Louise? Well, um, in terms of the story I told you? In yeah. terms of the, yeah, you were, but that's true. I think that's so true. You know, you, each character comes usually with their own sort of perspective and and take on what is happening and that's what was so brilliant about what i told you in the other room because i was okay so <laughs> this is a private conversation um there was a scene that's now really a moment in the in this in the, in the film but there was an actual scene where i i say goodbye to terence at the airport uh, character and um, there was also another scene, a love scene that that is so not there. And um, so by the time we got to the airport, my take was that she was she had fallen for him and she was emotionally in, entrenched with him, involved with him. And so that when I got to the airport to say goodbye, I believe the character would have been very emotional about it. And I was off in the corner of the set you know, preparing and um, and Stephen came over and he started telling me like a really bad joke. And I was <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, OK, that's funny, but I need to I need to sort of be prepared right now. And then he walked away and then I and I got serious and got back into what I was getting ready to do, which I thought was what was necessary in the scene and from my perspective. And then <laughs> And then you came back over and you start, you said, oh, but I, there's another part of it that I want to tell you. And I was like, I can't do this right now. And you walked away. And then two seconds later, it was time to shoot. And so I didn't have time to get ready. And I didn't, you know, have time to bring what I thought was necessary for this moment. And then when it was over, I said to you, what was, what was going on? Why did you, what were you doing? And you said, I knew that if I let you start crying, you'd never stop. And that wasn't right for the character, as you saw it. And you were 100% right. So in terms of what you just said, 
each actor and character comes with their own sort of take on what what's going on. And it is up to one hopes a brilliant director to see the entire picture and utilize what the actor can bring in the necessary confines of what your your take is, you know. So that was just a you know an example of many. I felt very off center in this pretty much all the time. <laughs> I mean, I really did. I and a lot of it because of the obliqueness of the script, you know, and the that opening scene, that first scene. I really didn't, you know, it was so unclear to me and unsure in terms of what I was supposed to be, my intention was or whatever. And that reads exactly right. So. Well, look, I think I was trying to figure it out as well. Really? And that, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, uh, I think, do I think you should be prepared when you come on a set? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do I think you should assume that everything that you've planned is going to work? Absolutely not. And so I think this was, this movie for me was every day I was like, okay, where's this going to go? Right. What, you know, I was, I was storm chasing, you know, and, and it's hard. The last thing I want to do is get in an actor's head and get them to, 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 uh, to pull them out of a sort of physical, you know, space, a space where they, where they're just being as opposed to performing. Mm -hmm. And, um, but this was tricky because I was I often, I was sort of wondering like where North mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. moment to moment. And that was even before we got into the editing room. So yeah. I don't know, like I said, the fact that we're all still even sitting here <laughs> talking, talking about, about it, it, <laughs> it seemed like a very remote possibility then when when it was all so um it was like trying to pick up mercury with a fork mm -hmm. like i i didn't <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I was just i was still you it's know up until we finished it. i was still chasing it i have a question was that was that scene with mickey cat was that improvised which one the one at the studio when he oh, not the studio on the film set the film set yeah, yeah, pretty much. That Sounds was Nikki just, you know, being oh God, wildly inappropriate. So um, but that's that guy. And so maybe that's so why good. he got killed. <laughs> um, oh, no. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, um, it, it's interesting because we shot we shot that whole Terrence and me scene, the opening scene. We, we shot that whole scene. And um, like I said, when I finally got to see it in the theater and I saw how it, that scene was broken up throughout the movie and it worked, you know, and like I said, you guys put an incredible puzzle together, you see. Um, and then on the flip side for me, also working with Terrence Stamp and trying to understand what he was saying half the time, <laughs> you know, but but I mean, that 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 was a good thing. That was a good thing because, you know, we had some kind of similarities considering that I had just gotten out of jail, you know, and, and, and him too. And so we had that kind of understanding with that frequency and stuff. But, um, but um, you know, I, I put my trust in, in, in Steve and, and, and the crew that we had 
Um, I knew if anybody could figure it out, it would be this man. We we had done the movie called Out of Sight together, and um, you know he 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 was all right, you know, because like with my character, I just never let things get into my head, you know. It, it, it was just like okay, we show up, we're ready, we shoot, we go, and it's like just very organic what was happening, what was going on, and and um, you know, like I said, the outcome, I I, I was absolutely blown away by the artistry and the whole conception of how this movie all came together. Uh, well, I want to get a few um, audience questions in. Hi, Stephen. This is a question for you. I did see Paul Cow, so I was curious how you put that in, what made you decide to use some clips of Terrence Stamp's old movie from the 60s in there. That was very well put together. Well, when, um, when Lem and I were talking about the script and talking about setting the movie up and talking about the very, very short list of British actors that we thought were appropriate for this. Lem said, look, here's the thing, you know, Terrence Stamp actually has this movie that he made with Ken Loach called Poor Cow, where he plays a thief. I hadn't seen the film, I didn't even know it. Lem has seen everything. And, and so we, and it didn't, it wasn't out on video. You know, this is 1998, we're having this conversation. It's not available, we find a copy and I'm like, oh my God, this is gold, like this is a gold mine. But there's kind of a moral issue here that needs to be addressed regardless of who owns the rights to that movie. And so I reached out to Ken Loach to, to ask him if it would be okay if we used this footage um, from his film. And luckily he said, when I described him what we were doing, he said, that sounds really fun. And I remember subsequently, months later after the movie was done, we were shooting Aaron Brockovich, I was out in Palmdale or somebody and Ken Loach comes to the set while we're shooting the scene with Julian Cherry Jones. And um, because he was in the US doing this movie Bread and Roses with Adrian Brody, who I'd worked with on King of the Hill. And we had a very nice conversation. And that, that was just, we were just so fortunate. When I saw that footage, I just thought this is gonna be, to see him singing that song I, I was like, kind of, wow, you can't, you can't write that. I mean, you literally can't write that. And, and at that point I knew like, well, I know how it's going to end. That's, that's something we can, re we can reverse engineer from there. Um, so that we just, yeah, we just got really lucky. Thank you very much. Uh, I adored this film. And one of the things that, my question's for uh, Sarah and Steven, one of the things that fascinated me about the editing were uh, scenes where uh, there would be a medium or semi-long shot, and then it would just cut to a close-up, not really doing moving 30 degrees, but just straight uh, into their faces. I'm thinking in particular of that scene where Terrence is doing that monologue about how what he wanted isn't what he thought he wanted. Uh, was that uh, something that was always baked into the film, or was it something you rediscovered uh, when you were started doing uh, the nonlinear version? Yeah, I mean, look, we we had four we had four angles. Basically, the typical way of cutting that would be to bounce back and forth between the four matching angles, choosing a point at at, at, at some stage to alter the coverage, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we were just as we were going back through and sort of rebuilding the movie thought like, well, why should we do that? 
why don't we just use all four angles looking one way and then use all four angles looking the other and don't do don't do a reverse um you know what whether, <laughs> whether or not that's a successful scheme it was new like it, it didn't it wasn't boring um so that's that's the way we we went through it and it also actually had an unintended positive consequence which is in point of fact in that scene in that monologue from terrence we're burying the climax of the movie the climax of the movie is terrence realizing it's his fault it's his fault he 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 had created a circumstance with his daughter that ended up being recreated with peter fonda that ended up in her death and he's having a moment of realizing if I weren't a thief and my daughter wasn't doing that, this never would have happened. And, and in that moment, he realizes, I'm not going to kill Peter Fonda. What I thought this was about was not what it was about. And that notion is buried in this scene. And so the, 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 the benefit of this sort of odd editing pattern was to disguise what ended up being the whole point of his character's journey. So that was something that was just sort of accidental that, that grew out of just a desire to not be normal. And, and it, helped, it helped sort of have that moment at the very end come at you from a, from a sort of side, from the side instead of from the front. And so again, we just got, we just got lucky. Plus I think it helped the joke which would have worked anyway, where he's, Bill Duke says, I don't understand every motherfucking word you're <laughs> yeah, saying, right. but it's especially fractured, not just as. Yeah, that wouldn't yeah, be as fun right. if you were doing back and forth. Yeah. As I was watching it, I kept on thinking, I'm watching a Finch film. And I kept on, it's not that the acting was superb, but I kept on replacing them with Finch actors. Is that something that you really would not like someone to do, or does it bother you? I would oh. not like it. What? <laughs> I said I would not like it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Alan Renee um, has had a huge influence on me. This movie, I think, in its you know final form, um, probably wouldn't exist in its final form if I hadn't seen a lot of his films. Um, Hiroshima Monomore mm -hmm. was. I think uh, a movie that really altered the, the, the landscape, even, even Jean-Luc Godard, when he saw Hiroshima Monomore for the first time, just said, well, he just changed everything. Um, and, you know, what, what we were, what that film did, which is a masterpiece, and what we were interested in trying to do were, are things that only movies can do. And that's, that, I think, is the most pleasurable aspect of, of this experience, is that it, it's, it's doing something that really move, the only movies can do. You can't write that. You can't describe it to somebody. It can't be a play. It can't be a dance. It's, it's, it's just something that only cinema, the, the, only the grammar of cinema can really get at, which is why I think people are still you know, emotional when they talk about movies, when they talk about what is cinema. You know, even this whole argument that's been going on 
in the last few weeks, you know, Scorsese and the whole Marvel thing and all that stuff. I mean, I look at it and go, well, I'm just glad we're having this conversation. I'm glad we're even talking about this. Like, what is cinema? What does it mean? What do movies mean? Um, I'm, I'm glad we're even, you know, having this discussion. And so this, it's, it's a unique form. And, and when you have the opportunity to work on something that allows you to push it, you know, as, as far as you can go. And again, I want to be clear. This was not a hit. It was a movie that was critically, I think, um, you know, embraced or people seem to appreciate it, but it, it was not a hit. Like it wasn't a hit. We got, we got nominated for Spirit Awards. Remember that? That's true. We did. That's true. That's true. It got glory. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and look, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not saying it, it wasn't a hit because I think people are stupid. I, I, look at the, I look at the movie and I go, why did we think this would be a hit? Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's an example of, you know, making artists just problem solving, like you're just problem solving. You're just trying to solve a problem moment to moment, day to day, month to month. You know, I, I've described it as, as trying to build a sort of six foot by nine foot tile mosaic with your nose one inch from the wall. You know, it's, it's tricky. Like, it's just tricky. And, you know, this, like I said, I, I, it, was, it was so terrifying because I felt like things were going so well after Out of Sight. <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought I finally kind of found, like, a lane that I can drive in and like after these years of being in the wilderness, making this like weird shit that nobody was seeing, you know, I thought, okay, like, okay, I'm back. And then to see this first cut and have people it, just to realize like we're in trouble. I was so, you know, and you hit it. I mean, I've, I've yeah. said this, you, I had no idea until you told me on the phone. Well, that's shocking to me because I was, I was, I, I felt like I'd been, pushed out of an airplane without a parachute like i really i was terrified well with it within a year i mean you were then you were making um, draft traffic and aaron brockovich was in the next two years so you were the trauma seemed if you were toughened by the fire i guess in some way well i've told this story yeah. i'm sure ed's heard the story so uh -huh. the producers of aaron brockovich were also the producers of out of sight they come to me on the set of out of sight they pitch me Aaron Brockovich. And I say famously, that is the worst idea for a movie I've ever heard. <laughs> Cut to, we're well into the edit on the limey, like grinding our way through this. They come back to me with uh, a screenplay and suddenly it seems like the best idea for a movie I've ever heard because it's just going in one direction. And so, no, so if 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 any if nothing else, I have this movie to thank for Aaron Brockovich, which I'm really glad I got to make. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, nobody thought yeah. such lies. But everybody, the only thing that was consistent was everybody told me you have to change that title. But then it became the template for like hundreds of headlines for the next 20, 20 no, years. We need a moratorium on this. Yeah. Like, yeah, that needs to that needs to stop. Um, I think we have time for one more question um, here on the left. 
Thank you so much for all for coming here tonight. I really enjoyed the film. It was actually my first time watching it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, but my question to all of it's question to all of you is, I know, you know, you 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 all have a very long career in working movies, perhaps you know TV shows as well. Are there any fond memories that really stand out to you today that you kind of look back, laugh, enjoy, just like cherish that moment? You want a version of the movie? Yeah. Way. So my, my 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 favorite moment was when Terrence and I go out on that porch, yeah. and I go, the sea's out there if you can see it. And and I thought about that for a few days, and I said, oh, okay, that does make sense. <laughs> you know, and I thought it was such a great line. So I mean, yeah, and, and people will, will will quote that to this to day. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that line in the line when you say that to see if you can see it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I think it was it was one of the things that that I remember from that kaleidoscopic shoot. And you know, as you know, as you may know, you know, you shoot movies out of sequence. Like it's not typically a linear experience, even in the shooting of it. And one of the things I remember is or, or trying to, you know, I'm trying to put together, I'm trying to, again, sort of sublimate myself to what the thing, what the thing wants, not what I want, what the thing wants. And I remember, you know, we had this moment of Terrence talking about the 60s, like, what was the 60s? One was the, and, and I knew this scene was coming up and I knew it was a bit, potentially a bit of a author's message moment if it wasn't handled properly. And I had seen Peter using like one of those tea tree oil toothpicks like on set at some point. And and as we were getting ready to shoot that scene, I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe we can kind of take the Mickey off this a little bit and not have it seem so author's messagey if he's doing this thing with his teeth, which is like not something that you really want to see anybody do, really, even if you're Peter Fonda and you've got great teeth. Um, and, and that was at, at that again, a problem solved. You know what I mean? I was worried that this thing was gonna be a little heavy handed and, and Peter provided the answer. I'd seen him like doing this thing with his teeth and I said to him like, is it okay? <laughs> Will you, like, are you okay? I'm, I'm taking your film. big speech. Like, are you okay with me taking your big speech and having you like pick your teeth? And he was like, absolutely. Like he didn't, it, to him it seemed like a perfectly natural thing to do so that was one thing that i remember as just an example of of trying to keep your antenna attuned to everything especially everything your cast is doing you know what i mean just in case you know just they know yes everybody's making their own movie but in a sense they know their characters better than you do and you should sort of be sensitive to to what what you're getting from them because you may be able to use something not in the place that it was originally intended but you can move it somewhere else because it's all connected ultimately so yeah 
Well, if, if I have to say what my enjoyment was, is to work with Stephen and that he was so into the camera. And we did one other film, Aaron Brockovich, but in this film, he operated B camera to the d distress of the A operator, who is a well-known Hollywood operator. And I got pleasure watching Stephen participate because by the time we got to Aaron Brockovich, he was telling me, do you really need that light? <laughs> so he was so into the photography that I knew he would go on his path. And he's become a great cinematographer. Yeah, Ed, Ed's being very, look, Ed's, Ed. I, I stole a lot from Ed. I learned a lot from Ed. Um, the movie that he most recently photographed, Dark Waters, is be beautiful, beautiful. And we were, we were talking about it just before we came in, and I think that's, you know, that's a perfect example of the kind of set that you want. You've got everybody on this set who, is, who loves what they do deeply and, and is, is connected in just trying to like find out what the essence of what we're doing today is and can we capture that. And you know, that's, I, I, the community um, for people who make movies, I think they understand this, but it's, it's that social interaction, that part of it is, is really important to me, I think that's what you have at the end of the day. Like it turns out to be a title on your resume or a thing on a shelf or whatever. Like those were hours and weeks and months that you spent with people. Like the quality of that matters to me. Like that we, that we feel like it was worth it and that, that we, you know, we don't look back and go, I wish, I wish it was different. I wish it was like I, that. It's important to me that on the set, that, that people feel, again, we're all moving toward the thing. It's not about uh, like, what does the thing want from us? And so that was, as, as I said, as scared as I was. It but, was but it's the confidence to get, that you give us to make the mistake. So I, th this is the one I remember that we talked about. This, the shot, and it's probably my favorite shot in the film, of Terrence driving to Eduardo's house, and uh, the modeling of the light, you know, is coming in. I never could have created that. We lost the generator, so we, we didn't have any lights for the car, interior of the car. So I said, Stephen, I, you know, I got this roll of 800 ASA. Kodak gave it to me to experiment or play with. Maybe we could use this, but please, can we just drive by lit windows that we were out near the airport? I said, it might not work. He said, let's go for it. And it's the best shot in the film because it isn't something you can recreate. You know, the interesting thing when I looked at the film tonight, this predated digital photo photography, but this really was shot like a digital film in many ways. We, he wanted an you know, not have many lights or use lights whenever we didn't need lights. We we did we used maybe five or ten percent the cameras ever on a tripod. You know, the camera was put in places you wouldn't normally put a camera. 
So there was this freedom of shooting this film that was atypical of like how a Hollywood film was shot. And after that, people came to me all the time about how different this film was and how it moved people. Yeah. Do you, do you have time? Do you want me oh, to tell yeah, absolutely. quickly? Yeah. Well, okay. You're not going to escape, no. <laughs> no, no. I, I just didn't know about time. But but um, I think um, when I went to meet Stephen to meet on this movie, we were sitting and having tea, and we were talking about everything other than the movie. We are talking about our kids and, you know, everything. And But I had come to the meeting um, having read the script and with an understanding of how I thought the character was, although we never talked about it. And then when we got on the set and we were, you know, we were shooting and all of that, um, there were the, the, the moment when I get to say, uh, I, I may have the line wrong, but, oh, you men and your dicks, you know, whatever that was, it was like the real sort of me came out as opposed to the character. And I remember you came up to me and you said, and I don't know if it was directly after that, but you said, um, you're not really depressed, are you? Because I had come to the meeting with the sort of tenor of being quiet and a disappointed actress and somebody who hasn't made it, so to speak. And I said, no, I'm not depressed at all. And you said, you really like to laugh. And I said, I do. And it was in that moment that I think you got to, or I got to express, you know, so that yeah. was one of my favorites. That's uh, I went to, I never go to set, but I did go to set when they did the three days of reshoots. It was actually the airplane interior, which you had built at um, Universal. And I was just quietly standing back at the craft services table and Terrence came over to me to speak to me. And I was so happy just to meet him. And he, when he found out I was the editor, he said, oh, what do you think about all these reshoots? And, you know, what's it going to be for? And I I've never had to think on my feet so quickly. And I'm so proud of the fact that I did because I had just seen some David Lean, a review of a David Lean retrospective in LA. And the reviewer had said that Dr. Javaga was built around the face of Julie Christie and, um, and uh, um, Lawrence of Arabia was built around the face of Peter O'Toole. So I said, like Dr. Javago and like Peter O'Toole, Stephen is gonna build this film around your face. And he called you, you remember that? No. <laughs> and you said, to the, what did you say to Terrence? He just called me and said, your editor's very intelligent. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for tonight. But thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org.